I am delighted to be at the Torch Center with another very fantastic and special guest uh, to have a conversation about uh, Kashrus kosher in America today in general and uh, specifically uh, about various ways that we could uh, integrate kosher into our life. And I'm joined with Rabbi Nassan Dubin, who is the rabbinic administrator of the Houston Kashrus Association. He's also the founder of the Kosher Institute of America an innovative and interactive kosher's education and consultancy organization. Their website is kosherinstitute.com. Rabbi Dubin is also the author of a comprehensive in-depth analysis of the laws of kosher's. That's a Hebrew book, 247 pages. It's called Hatzasa Shulchan, which has become a standard text for many scholars trying to become experts in the laws of kosher. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabbi Dubin. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be on what a, such a popular podcast. Oh, fantastic. Yes. <laughs> uh, very flattering. Uh, and it's, I think it's kind of nice. You know, we, we live in Houston, Texas. We're very fortunate that in this small town, relatively speaking, by Jewish standards, we have an expert, uh, a really a truly worldwide expert on all things kosher, but also someone who has the ability to explain somewhat arcane, complicated topics in ways that uh, simple laymen can understand. And I think it's a tremendous service for the local population, you know, to oversee the agency that uh, is tasked with furthering kosherous options in, in Houston, but also in your capacity as the founder of the Kosher Institute of America, you developed a course, which I found it very fascinating. You're, you're, you're promising on your website to get the people who sign up for your course to get them to have kosher mastery in eight hours. And I want to thank you for that, the tremendous service you've done not only for the community here, but also for the worldwide Jewish community who's interested in, in learning about, about kosher. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a real journey getting to this point and creating the course. And uh, thank God we've gotten very, very positive feedback overall. And um, people have really gone from zero to 60 very, very quickly. And it, it's making waves across the Jewish world. Uh, you told me that it's you're partnering with one of the biggest uh, Jewish organizations, uh, H.com. They want it, They want your stuff. Everyone's, everyone's after because you're providing a service that's uh, very valuable. We actually had a um, someone else that someone that reached out, someone that just took the course. And it was clear from the questions that they were asking in the beginning, that they were completely 100% clueless about kosher. They took the course, and over time, the questions started getting more and more educated to the point that they finished the course, and they got their certificate. And it was a wonderful feeling to see them, this woman, go actually from really no information about kosher whatsoever. They don't live in a Jewish community. I don't know what their background is. I don't know anything about them other than their name. But it's clear that they knew nothing, and now they seem to be very, very well-versed. And I would probably suggest, you know, as someone who's been kosher observant since I was born, grew up in a kosher observant family, a lot of people, even people that are kosher observant, there's a lot of details that they would pick up on a comprehensive course, you know, starting from nothing, that they, oh, I didn't know that. That's why we do that. Oh, interesting. Kind of all those things as well. And I want, I want to get into the course in, in a little bit, but I, I wanted to do – oh, I want to add one more thing, that on your website – uh, there's a test uh, where you could you could measure your 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 kosher aptitude, and it gives you a sense of some of the gaps maybe that you have. And I'm I'm not embarrassed to tell the audience that I took the test, and I out of ten questions, I got four of them wrong. Even though, to my defense, some of them were designed in a tricky way. You know, maybe I wouldn't have made big blunders, but I, I'm acknowledging that there are some holes, uh, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that because. You know, that's just the way it is. And we got to, we got to, if you don't learn, you're not going to know. So I will say with that quiz, um, I think we got, since we started, many, many, many people have taken that quiz. I think there were, the amount of hundreds, I think, is definitely less than one hand. Oh, so like a very small percentage yes. of people. Yes. I think uh, maybe 300s we got. Oh, so, that's, and, wow. and honestly, the truth is that while the questions may be, may be somewhat comprehensive, oh. Um, it's only 10 questions, but they're all questions that we all need to know the answer to, regardless of whether we know the answer, but we need to know the answer because these are things that are coming up every day. Very so. relevant. So 
So I, what I want to talk about today, I want to have a discussion about uh, kosher in general, why it's important, why it's, I think, easy or easier than it's ever been. Uh, but also, I think you ha- you come with an interesting background. You know, you have involvement on kind of the national scale in kosher education in the modern day and age, doing it online in a very interactive way. But also, you're involved kind of boots on the ground in Houston, a growing Jewish community with a growing uh, kosher observant population, and you're involved in, in restaurants and and food establishments and factories and things like that, which is fascinating to me because you know as a consumer, I'm like, ah, oh, it's kosher certified, good to go. And then there's a whole behind the scenes back end stuff that you do that I want to d- dig into uh, a little bit. So I want to talk about kosher in general, uh, why it's important, why it's easy. Uh, some of the modern stuff about the kosher agencies, what they do, some of the challenges you face, and of course, to talk about your work with the uh, Kosher Institute of America, the new uh, innovative uh, program that you're that you're doing, and of course, you can feel free to chime in. Yeah, you're doing great. Okay, <laughs> so now I, I, I want to just you know tell the audience that I grew up kosher, and I would never consider. Non-kosher, it's not really a, an issue of, of of conflict that I have. I know it is for a lot of people out there. But I was thinking, you know, if I wanted to lobby or I wanted to convince the audience or I wanted to make a presented argument, if I wanted to present an argument as to why I think people should keep kosher, I would probably present a two-pronged argument uh, as as follows. I want to say that, you know, of all the myriads of, of Torah laws that we have, the laws of kosher – are very serious ones and very important ones, as you know, I found in the sources. And I think that's that should be compelling. But in addition, I feel like there's never been a time in our history where keeping kosher is this easy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the kosher market, the numbers are something like, I would say that I believe the number is something like 75% of the people that are looking for kosher symbols on products are not even Jewish. So it's gone beyond the Jewish community. Oh, way beyond. Um, and that's really what's supporting this trend is the fact that kosher has become so in vogue has made it so much easier to get companies on board because the companies are actually clamoring to become kosher as a marketing tool. Whereas 50 years ago, this was not the case. And the kosher agencies were literally begging people, well, what can we do to get you to be kosher? Now, if you go down the supermarket the vast majority of the foods on the shelf are going to be kosher. See, I, th- I think that's something that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people think like, well, I'm not kosher. That's way too complicated. But then you open up their pantry, you go through their cupboards, and well, actually, you know, most of the stuff that you're consuming actually already is kosher. Right, right. And it's just that like last 5% that you oh, need totally. to work on. I mean, we have this all the time. Whenever I give any type of presentation or sometimes we'll be doing we'll – co- we'll do a kosher certification in a hotel where we're producing food in a – typically non-kosher hotel, and, you know, we can talk about that later. But very often when I'm showing people that are not familiar with kosher, so do you realize that the snacks that you're eating right now and the other, the beverages and everything else, that's all kosher? They're like, no, how do you know that? And, you know, I show them the kosher symbol, and it's it's fascinating for people. But, yes, like you, like you mentioned, it's definitely a lot easier than people realize today. I wouldn't say the same thing, you know, 30, 40 years ago. There's actually there's a um, there's a two day international business fair a um, a business expo called Kosher Fest that they have every year for people to present uh, the different vendors and and um, different items different food items and it's become beyond crazy crazy popular everyone's becoming kosher because they realize that with some modifications you can just reach a whole new market and it's just becoming really in vogue it's very interesting and i also found out maybe this is just uh, anecdotal but i see like when you have like these bags that i buy from costco of popcorn or whatever they have like vegan like a bitch sign vegan and uh, no mgos and kosher it's like one of those things that they want to promote it's not like a symbol that they hide that oh jews know how to decipher it but it's you know, not this it's not like that all over the world that's something which is unique to definitely united states um i don't know you know in europe it's it's very difficult to find things with actually with kosher certifications on the container i don't know exactly why but it doesn't seem to be quite as popular for the companies they don't seem as motivated to get kosher certifications. The companies in Europe that are promoting their products in the United States and elsewhere, yes. But for people living in Europe, it's much more difficult. 
Mm-hmm. And and from what I understand, and I'm not an expert at this at all, but the the Muslims who keep halal, they also rely on the kosher certification. That's enough for them. Is that true? So that's an interesting question. It's it's mostly true, but not a hundred percent. And I'll give you. I'll explain to you like this. So you're an expert not only in Jewish well, I dietary laws. Um, <laughs> I'm not an expert in halal, but I did research it because one of our kosher restaurants wanted to advertise their products as halal, and my research came up with, again, this is not not from an authority on halal. I, I'd like to keep stay in my area of expertise. But from my understanding is that there is somewhat of a dispute in the Muslim world whether or not meat, which was slaughtered for kosher certification purposes, can be accepted as halal. It seems like most of them accept it as, as halal. Kosher meat is accepted as halal. But here's the catch. If they go into a kosher, they, they have, with regards to meat, Yes, they have strict regulations, but anything that's kosher definitely makes their regulations according to the, the majority opinion there. But if you marinate that meat in wine, Muslims don't drink alcohol. Interesting. So it's not halal anymore. So if they walk into a kosher restaurant and they get a brisket that was marinated in a wine marinade, that's not halal, but it's kosher. Wow, interesting. So, Well, fascinating. Steve learned stuff that I didn't know. Okay, so so I want to go through quickly just my take, and you can of course contribute, disagree, whatever. Uh, of 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 just an angel. I think there's there's many angels to talk about this, but one of the angels I think it's a valuable. Anytime we talk about kosher, it's a valuable angle because it's the Torah's the Torah's take on why we should keep kosher. So the Torah gives us the laws of kosher in several places. We had recently in the book of Exodus twice, two out of three times, not to eat the, cut the kid in the kid in the mother's milk. Rashi says, of course, one is to prohibit the consumption and one to prohibit the, the cooking. You want the benefiting of milk or meat. Big subject, of course. Uh, but the, uh, I think the largest, uh, Torah section related to kosher food is in Leviticus 11, where it lists all the animals that are kosher and not kosher. And then it ends, with a um, a very uh, strident warning against not eating non-kosher. Uh, and it says, I want to read it here, uh, don't abominate your soul by eating all these non-kosher foods and don't make yourself uh, defiled and don't make yourself impure via eating non-kosher. And the verse continues, I'm the Lord Hashem, your God. Sanctify yourself. Be holy. I'm holy. You eat kosher. You're like God. That's what's implied. Don't make yourself defiled through all these non-kosher foods. And it kind of reiterates this point uh, again and again. And it makes like a connection. You know, a lot of times people assume that the laws of, of kosher has something to do with cleanliness, with hygiene. That was for those days. They didn't know what we know today. And here we see in the Torah how the Torah itself defines Kosher, it has something to do with, with spiritual purity and spiritual cleanliness. And then the Talmud adds another wrinkle to this. The Talmud says in the book of Yom, page 39a, it says, when the verse tells you, tamu, do not defile yourself, the way you should really read it is vinitamtem, you will become dull. You'll become spiritually desensitized. The Talmud says is that there's a certain spiritual sensitivity that we have as humans, as people created in the image of God. And that becomes dull, that becomes weaker, specifically with non-kosher, but in general with, with, with all, with all sins. And it's an amazing idea. And Talmud goes on to, to elaborate. If someone defiles themselves down below, they get defiled from above. If someone defiles in this world, then in the afterlife, they're also defiled. And on and on, you defile yourself a little bit, you'll be defiled a lot. And it specifically, I found this very fascinating, that with respect to non-kosher, we're told that this is going to have very lasting and even eternal consequences on the purity, the sublimity of your soul and its holiness. Definitely an extra motivation. Yes. Yes. I know it's kind of, it's terrifying. And then there's another uh, statement I want to add and I have two more stories which I think really hammer home this point. There's a, a statement in the Masil Sisharm in the uh, Way of the Upright or the Path of the Just, depends which definition you use, which uh, translation, but the book by Ramchal, uh, one of the, of course, foundational books of, of Musar, of Jewish ethics and philosophy, he's talking about non-kosher. And he says, the non-kosher food insert impurity 
in the heart and soul of man to the degree that the holiness of God departs from him and distances itself from him. And he quotes the Talmud, the one that we just mentioned in the book of Yoma. And it says that there is a certain true knowledge and spirit of the intellect that gets banished from someone when they eat non-kosher food. They make themselves coarse. They make themselves animalistic. They become submerged in the physical world. And he adds, like, this is something that becomes part of you. You eat something, you're like subsuming it. And this is an idea, I think. This is fascinating. Know, I never heard this quote before. Well, there we go. This is there, an idea that, that. I heard something here today. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you thought you'd teach about kosher, huh? Yeah, no, that's fascinating. A and, very and strong the, statement. Yeah, this is an idea that we see a lot. Like, you know, uh, all the gurus and the health and the wellness people, they say, well, you are what you eat. And you want to eat the grass-fed beef and the pasture, the pastured eggs and, and, you know, whatever you're, the animal that you're eating is eating that's become, you know, you're, you're, you're integrating that into, into yourself. And here we see that this really applies on a spiritual sense as well. That the, you know, just like the, the physical food becomes part of your physical body, there's a spiritual component of that. And kosher food is spiritually nutritious. Your soul is happy with it. Whereas non-kosher food is spiritually harmful and it's going to, again, dull that certain special spark that we have in our soul that connects us to God. It's going to create distance. It's going to create like, a, like an artificial barrier separating us from our spiritual sensitivity. Definitely an inspiration. And I, find that, I find that very, very powerful. Yeah. I and mean, this is all besides the fact that God commanded it. Yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, you know, but there's definitely and, – and when whenever we're considering issues of, you know, cross-contamination and other issues, this is – this this piece of what we call timtum halev, which as you translated, the dulling of the spiritual sense, is something which comes into play where people are concerned that even if something is technically permitted, under certain circumstances, you want to just make sure that there's actually – there's not going to be any side effect. This is what you're actually this is eating. side effect, right. Amazing. And I want to, I want to share, uh, two, uh, stories that bring home this point about how what people eat affects them spiritually. There's a, uh, a famous, I would say tragedy in the Talmud. One of the great sages of the Talmud, he was like the greatest sage of his era or one of the greatest sages of his era, but sadly he devolved and he became a heretic. And uh, it's one of the really sad episodes. It's brought primarily the book of Khadija and the teens. And the individual's name was Elisha ben Avuya. He was a great rabbi, and he was the primary teacher of Rabbi Meir, who is one of the most important figures in that era. In fact, when we have a Mishnah, Mishnah is essentially the notes of Rabbi Meir. If it's an unattributed Mishnah, that's the authorship of Rabbi Meir. Eventually, of course, Rabbi Meir becomes a student of Rabbi Tiva, and that's, there's a long history to that. I did do a Jewish history podcast on Rabbi Meir himself, and we talked about this uh, at depth. But this great rabbi, he kind of he departs, he goes awry, and he becomes a heretic. And he, he gets nicknamed Acher. He's the other one. And the Talmud says, oh, great story that he was prepositioning a prostitute on Shabbos. And she's like, wait, aren't you this great rabbi? What are you doing? So he goes and he plucks the flower out of the ground to show that he's like desecrating Shabbos. And she's like, oh, you must be Acher. You must be someone else. And that became his nickname that stuck. And his whole life, his students are trying to bring him back. It's a very long story and a very tragic one. You know, we had someone with great scholarship and great ability and great uh, uh, charisma and someone who was really destined to become a great great Jewish leader and he kind of slid and went awry. Why did Acher, why did Elisha ben Avuya, why did he go off? Why did he go awry? Why did he not maintain the path? Why did he not become one of the great giants of his era? So the Talmud tells us, and this is quoted in the Tosfos and Khadija 15a, starting verse Shuvu, why did Acher have this terrible descent. And he gives a story, a background. When his mother was pregnant with him, she was passing by an idolatrous temple and she caught the aroma. They were cooking a pig in there. And she caught the aroma, the wafting aroma of the pork. And she was overcome with desire. And she went inside and she partook in it. And the Talmud tells us that the forbidden meat began quivering within her like the venom of a poisonous snake. And that infected her unborn child within her. And that kind of spiritual 
vulnerability or spiritual contamination, that was the seeds that played out over the course of you know, his history. When he's an adult, he's already established. There's something already corrupt within him because his mom ate, ate the non-kosher food. And this is compounded by the fact that the Talmud actually says, you know, if a, if a pregnant woman, she has a desire for non-kosher food or food in Yom Kippur, there's teachings in the Talmud talking about how well you could actually waive it because, you know, if a pregnant woman, she has, she, she has a craving and she, if you don't, quen, you, you don't quench the craving, child might be injured, the mother might be injured. So it might have been even technically per- permitted for her to eat that. But still, our sages tell us that that was really the, the beginning of the end of Acher. He was corrupt. There was a certain corruption due to the non, the non-kosher. Wow. wow. And I and and there's another on the flip side. There's a, there's another a positive story, uh, again brought down in the Talmud. This is uh, regarding uh, Antoninus, who was most likely Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the Roman emperor from the year 160 to 180, 161, I think it was to 180. And he was a great friend of the Jews, according to the Jewish tradition. He actually converted. He was a study partner with Rabbi Judah the Prince, and he oversaw the amazing project of writing down the Mishnah. And he had a certain streak of holiness to him. Well, where did this Roman emperor who are known for their cruelty and terrible treatment of the Jewish people, where does he have this sympathy towards towards the Jews? And where did he get this, you know, the spiritual drive to study Torah and to maybe even convert? So we're told in the Midrash, and a fascinating story, I might have said it in a different podcast, so forgive me if you've heard this once before. Amazing story. Rabbi Judah the Prince He's a brand new baby, okay? He comes from the most prestigious family of the Jewish people. But he's born at a time of horrific Roman persecution of the Jews. The emperor Hadrian says, study Torah publicly, I'm going to execute you. And that's, of course, how Rabbi Kiva died. He says, you know, he can't observe Shabbos and he can't perpetuate the smicha, the rabbinic ordination. One of the things he says, you you circumcise your child, the child gets executed together with the mom. So Rabbi Judah, the prince's mom, of course, and family, they, they circumcise their child. They don't care what the Romans say. We're going to do it anyhow. The Romans get wind of it and they say, okay, we got to bring this child to Rome. We got to inspect him. Got to find out if he's circumcised. We're executing the mom, the baby. Talmud gives this great story. Traveling to Rome. What a terrible trip. You travel with your infant. This is the child destined to become the leader of the Jewish people from a very prestigious family from David and they're traveling to Rome. Why? So the Romans can inspect him. If he's circumcised, they're going to execute him. Along the way, they stop off in an inn. And this mom traveling with her baby meets another mom, a Roman mom, who is traveling with her baby. And they become friends. And they start talking. Well, what, what were you doing? What is what's happening? And anyhow, eventually she reveals, well, I'm going to Rome because they want to inspect the child that the child circumcised. And they're going to kill him. She says, well, I have a great idea. Why don't we swap babies? And they swap babies. And Rabbi Judah the Prince's mom brings the other baby to Rome, not circumcised. You're A-OK. They go back and they swap the babies back. Says the Talmud, who is that baby? Well, that's Antoninus. And there was a certain relationship, Rabbi Judah the Prince and the Roman individual who eventually became the emperor. There's a connection that they had really from a very early age. They're infants and they have a connection. Says the Talmud, why did Antoninus have this drive towards purity? Because when he was a baby, he was suckling from Rabbi Judah the Prince's mom. He was kind of, his food that he was consuming was holy kosher food, so to speak. It was filtered through this, this mom. And therefore that infused within the child a drive to holiness. He had a, a spiritual sensitivity and eventually that played out that became one of the great heroes of our history. And he's, and he's lauded and he converted and he was, he was a great aid to Richard the Prince in his, wow. in another, his. Another amazing story. Yeah. And of course, there's a story of Moses. I don't want to get bogged down with the story, but I just found like this is such a powerful idea that when you're consuming, what you're eating is it's actually going really to, you. yeah, it's going to affect who you are spiritually. That's kind of the first half of my argument. You know, like you, your, your spiritual acuity, your spiritual sensitivity hinges upon what you eat. You eat kosher food, it's holy, you eat non-kosher food, it gets dulled. That's the first part. And the second part is that I think it's easier today than ever to learn about kosher. 
And like you mentioned earlier, that there's, there's so much options. I, I had someone here this week and he's like, oh, are there kosher restaurants in Houston? I'm like, yeah, well, we got a steakhouse. We got two Mediterranean joints. We got a vegetarian place. We got a pizza store, a Chinese place. We got all these kosher aisles and all these amazing. And this is, these are the, you know, these are unprecedented times, a golden era of, of eating, of eating kosher availability wherever you go. I always say that, um, you know, I travel with my family every year we drive to Canada. And there's this like void in the middle of the country. There's no kosher restaurants. Like you drive from here to Canada. If you go 20 minutes out of the way in Detroit, you get a kosher restaurant. But really there's nothing on the way besides for Memphis. There's a restaurant, the JCC in Memphis. So when you travel and you want to eat fast food or whatever, it's a challenge. Yeah. But still in every single grocery store in America, there's plenty of kosher food. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think of all the brand names, you know, Heinz, Hunts, Oreos, Lay's, you know, Bimbo. I mean, these companies, so many of these companies are kosher. It's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, you walk up and down the aisles and you know what you're looking for. You'll, uh, I mean, if you want, if you want, like you mentioned, you know, if you want a good fast food burger, you know, you may not get that in, uh, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a cornfield somewhere in middle America. Even in the middle of somewhere. <laughs> in the middle of somewhere. Even like some, there's some cities that don't have a, a very large yes, kosher exclusive true. population. I think we have a higher per capita than typical. Well, in, in Houston, yes, so. definitely. I yes. would agree with that 100%. Yeah. So we're lucky. Yes. And that's probably due to you and your organization. Uh, well, definitely due to you and your organization. <laughs> and, and like I said, it's, it's also easy to learn, you know, and part of that, well, as we get into is, is your course. How, like in eight hours, in an interactive way, you can know how to keep kosher. Not just how to keep kosher in your house, how to keep kosher when things come up, how to go shopping as a kosher consumer, really everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's, an ama- sure. it's an amazing thing. Like, you know, we're, it's not, it's not, uh, part it's very of attainable. The, yes, it's very, it's very obtainable and it's, and it's very, um, accessible. And I want to just give another another shout out here. I do have some podcasts that I've done in the past. I used to do every year a kosher one on one class, and I used to, I did a class go, going kosher in three easy steps. They said, okay, here's the title: going kosher in three easy steps. Okay, fine. I, I figure out the class and I make it three steps. But it's really going kosher in one easy step. It's it's just it's, easy if you're interested. You it's got called it. commitment, right? Yeah, that's it. Uh, though there are still some misconceptions. You know, I spoke to someone recently. Well, kosher. Well, that's what blessed by a rabbi, right? Oh, I get that all the time. I, I don't know where it comes from. I get that all the time. And when we do, um, specifically by hotel events, so we'll have it, we have, we have actually a preparation going on in the hotel right now as we speak. We have a team of people there, but we'll come into a hotel that's typically non-kosher and we'll kosherize it, which is a discussion in and of itself. We'll kosherize the kitchen and produce kosher in their non-kosher environment, typically non-kosher environment, but under kosher conditions. And they know they, they'll bring us an item before they use it. They have to show it to us just to get it approved. In most people's minds, the assumption is they need to show it to us so they need to be blessed by a rabbi. And the truth is that I don't always contradict it because in their mind, they need to be blessed by a rabbi. Whatever it is, the bottom line is they know that they need to bring it to me before we use it. So if they think it's being blessed by a rabbi, I'm good with that because that means it needs approval before we use it. So there are some misconceptions, definitely. Oh my that's gosh, that's yes. still linger, but... Yeah, this, is very, would, this is very, very popular, actually. I get this all the time. Black all the rabbi. time. All the time. Yeah. I wonder what the uh, origin of, of, of that is. You know, where does it come from? I have no idea. Uh, but yeah, so, so, you know, I would advise everyone to, you know, you want to study about it. You could read about it. There's some great books. Of course, there's an amazing course that we'll get into. But, you know, I think there's we have a diverse. books on it also. I mean, there's some really, really, really good books. I mean, just go to, uh, if you go to any of the kosher, the, the, Jewish bookstores or or um, there's some some really, really good books on it. There's one, The Kosher Kitchen, where I've been yumming forced. That's really good. That's it's very comprehensive. So you have to be ready for for the long haul. But it's it's really, really good. And there's some really other this there's really a lot of nowadays it's just it's unbelievable. There's a tremendous amount of material out there. What a time. This is a renaissance. The renaissance of Jewish learning. I love it. So um I think we have uh, a diverse audience. I would surmise that some people who are listening never entertained eating on kosher. They grew up kosher and then they never – they know what it is basically. Maybe they need to be educated too but like like I do. But uh, 
you know, they're in, you know, they, they're kosher observant. And then I'm sure we have other people that really don't know anything about it. It's, it's a new concept. They, they know they've heard about it. They, they may yet think that it's blessed by a rabbi. And it may sound very intimidating, very daunting. Oh, I got to reform how, how you buy food. It's, it sounds like you really have to change your life. And I want to know maybe if you could offer the audience and myself a little bit of a, like a virtual guide of how shopping as a kosher conscious consumer, how does that work? How is that maybe different? What are the things that people would need to amend if they wanted to go kosher? Like walk me through a grocery store. What happens? Guide me. Well, you're living in Houston, Texas. But if you live in New York City, Tri-State, all it means is walking into a kosher grocery store. <laughs> and then everything there is kosher. And then everything's kosher. So then you're good to go. You don't need to know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so then you, you don't have to worry about anything because everything is so kosher. So there are actually some stores that the store itself is under certification and they take responsibility for checking every product that comes in. And that's being offered for sale. So you can walk in there with your eyes closed. And as long as you don't mix, you know, the milk and the meat, whatever other issues potentially you can create yourself. But you can actually walk into the store, go up and down the aisles and take whatever you'd like. Oh, so that's the easiest way to do that's it. That's the easiest way to do it. I, if you have that option, I recommend it. <laughs> um, we don't have that option. Yet. So, so, so what do I need to do? I walk into the grocery store. So let's go by section. Um, we'll just have an idea. So if we walk into a typical store... Let's talk about a, a larger supermarket, like a Safeway, Randall's, Abbotson's kind of kind Kroger. of store, and with a place that has, let's say, a kosher aisle. If it doesn't have a kosher aisle, it's, it's a little bit you're a little bit more limited. But in a, it's in a place that has access to a Jewish community, very often they're going to have a kosher aisle. I don't mean a kosher aisle where they have just the Manischewitz matzah and containers of gefilte fish. I'm talking yeah, about kosher we'll aisles that have <laughs> two years ago. Um, but, you know, they, where they have a kosher section. So in the bakery department, some places they'll have actually the bakery department. We have, for example, a Randall's, which is a Safeway kind of store. They have a kosher bakery. The bakery is exclusively kosher. And the truth is that they can offer almost all the regular products that they would offer in a non-kosher with certain limitations. So it takes a certain amount of research on their end and they have to follow certain guidelines. But in that case, you can really get everything. Now, obviously, if the bakery is not kosher, you can't get anything there. Now, a common misconception you'll find very often in an out-of-town kind of environment is you'll go into a bakery that's not kosher and they're selling challah, which is the Shabbos bread bread for Shabbat. And people assume, well, if it's bread for Shabbat, it must be kosher. It's got to be, right? <laughs> right? It's got to be, right? That would seem to be paradoxical. But paradoxical or not, it makes a buck. And there will, if people are willing to buy it, they're willing to sell it. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's kosher. You do want to have some type of kosher certification. So let's talk about kosher symbols, actually, for a minute before we walk into the grocery. I think that's really important. So if you had to guess how many kosher certifying agencies and symbols that represent those agencies there are out there. How many do you think there would be? From what I, my research, there's hundreds. Okay. There's over 1,400. Wow. Yeah. So think about it this way. We have over 1,400 symbols. Now – So it means there's 1,400 separate organizations. 1,400. Each one of them claiming that they're going to go in and whatever food establishment it is, if it's a factory, if it's a restaurant, if it's a grocery store, whatever it is, they're the ones. They're standing behind the kosher uh, – the, the kosher of that of the, of the venue or Correct. of the product. Right. So now keep in mind also that any John Doe can open up a kosher certifying agency because – there's no type of oversight. Who's going to prevent you from opening a kosher agency? You can open a kosher agency. So Some states have laws. Actually, the state of Texas actually has a law that if you advertise anything as kosher, it has to be kosher according to Orthodox Jewish standards. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's in Texas statutes. But there are some other states that have that. But typically, anyone who wants can really set up shop and be a kosher certifying agency, which creates a problem for us that when you see a kosher symbol, if it has some Hebrew letters on it or it just says a K or something like that, you're like, okay, it must be kosher. It has a kosher symbol. But we need to understand that not every symbol is the same. And, and, and I mean, every one of these 1,400 organizations has their own standards. Exactly. And they have their own practices. Exactly. And that's very important. Now, this sounds overwhelming, Right. And the truth is that I don't know all 1,400 symbols, and I definitely don't know which ones are reliable. So there are some great resources out there that you can that you can use to check up certifications. Um, you could definitely, if you have a relationship with a rabbi or a kosher organ, your local kosher organization, 
that's definitely a place to go. And there is there are websites of, of other organizations that actually they vet them and they look into these organizations, and it's definitely a great resource. One of them is the CRC in Chicago. They have a website. You can check out their website. They have a list of organizations that, that they recommend. Now, again, they're not saying that the ones that they don't, that are not on the list are definitely bad. They're just saying, listen, we've looked into these and we feel comfortable recommending them. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, they don't have the ability to look into 1400 agencies, but so that's, you know, you can look on their website, crcweb.org, and they also have another great resource, askcrc.org. And there are other organizations also provide this kind of information. Now, so you're walking into the, into the, back into the, into the, grocery store. So you're going to want to make sure that any product you have has a kosher symbol. Now you're like, what's a kosher symbol? So if you pick up a bottle of water and you take a look at it, you're going to find a little symbol on there, either a, a U inside a circle, a K inside a circle, um, or some type of certifying agency certifying that water, more likely than not. And as you start going through products, it's, it's something that you get com- comfortable with. So the bottom line is the first thing you walk into the grocery store is every single product that you're purchasing needs to have an approved kosher symbol. So that's so that's the uh, processed and packaged foods. Packaged foods. Now, there's one other very important point, which is very often you'll see on a product it'll have just a K. And for the uninformed consumer, a K means kosher. Now, keep in mind, K is not a trademark symbol. So if I want to put a K, if I'm selling bacon which is obviously not kosher, and I want to put a K on there, assuming I'm not in violation of my state's kosher law, that's not a problem. So and even K if I is am, not one of the 1,400. K, K, uh, right. A K is, all the other symbols, the 1,400 symbols, are trademark symbols that no one else can use. A K is not a trademark symbol, so anyone can write that. So seeing a K on a product just means, essentially, that the company believes it's kosher. Okay. Got it. So I guess, so I, so package products, I got to find an approved symbol Correct. at the OU, the OK, the HKA, whatever it may be. Correct. Okay. Well, what else? And, and bakery, you said if it's got to have cert- certification. Correct. Now, you, in the bakery department, typically you're going to have some items that are going to be dairy. Some of them are going to be parv. Dairy, anything with dairy ingredients. And then parv means anything that doesn't have dairy or meat ingredients, and it can be eaten with either dairy or meat. In the produce department, if the produce department is under certification, you're doing great. Even if it's not under certification, if the the question that you're going to – the primary issue you're going to have in the produce department is as follows. There's two primary issues. One is infestation. So one of the kosher laws and one of the most severe aspects of kosher is that we're not allowed to eat insects. Not only that, if you eat a piece of bacon, you've transgressed one violation. If you eat – an insect, you could potentially transgress up to six violations per insect. So if you potentially, if you had a choice of eating a piece of bacon or eating an ant, you should definitely eat the bacon. I don't think you should eat either one. But if you had a choice, it would definitely be the one of the, the less severe option. Okay. So you have different kinds of produce. So even though the produce itself is kosher, correct. If, the, if there's an infestation in it. Correct. That would be, uh, that would be a problem. And now, all leafy greens and things like that are definitely items that potentially have infestation. So you can buy whatever you want in the produce department, but you just need to make sure that there's no problem of infestation. And if there is a potential infestation problem, you have to learn how to clean it. I always tell people they don't believe me. I've never in my life eaten a strawberry. They don't believe me. But apparently what I've discovered is that strawberries are very likely to have buds in it. So I could say I've never eaten a strawberry, but I've never eaten a bug in a strawberry either. That's true. <laughs> so, so that's a, that's an important point. A lot of people might might not have known that even something which is kosher, but because it's produce, there is perhaps a propensity, at least of certain, you know, certain products or certain items in the in the, in, in the vegetable and grocery and produce section that are likely to have or potentially can have, and you need to check and inspect and remove any bugs. Correct. Correct. Now, if it's cut-up produce and it's items that don't have problems of infestation, most kosher organizations would say that that's okay to purchase, even though it's not under certification, because typically they have dedicated knives for the produce department. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to put a little pin in that. I'm going to tell people, like, there's a lot of details here. We can't go through, like, how to check lettuce and how to remove buds from uh, asparagus. So that, that's something that you cover in the course, is that right? Yeah, so there's actually a demonst- there are demonstrations Kitchen demonstrations of exactly how and to do it. And this is all by video, right? This is all video, right? Amazing. I want to I 
quickly before we you know, before we run out of time, I want to ask some some tough questions here. And uh, just to tell the audience here, I did not share my list of questions <laughs> with Rabbi Dubin. So he's going to be put on the spot. And uh, please forgive me for this. That's okay. So I, I want to get a little bit behind the scenes of, of a kosher organization. Like I said, you, you know, you run the Kosher Institute of America, which is more like an on, like an online education platform. But there's also like the local brick and mortar stuff that you do here. And I would say that the premise of of a kosher agency is that you know there's all kinds of ingredients that go into processed foods. You know, you buy a burger at the restaurant. You're, you're, you're buying a finished product, but what went into that? What kind of meat? What kind of sauces? What kind of spices? What kind of bread? All, all that you don't know. It's all in the back end. It's all done in the kitchen. We, I hire you. I hire your organization. You go there. You inspect. You make sure it's all kosher so I could just eat it. No questions asked. So I want to, you know, the, the general question is that, you know, tell us a little bit about the process from your end. I have a specific question I want to ask you, but kind of give, give me a little picture of what it's like to certify, you know, restaurant. What are the things that come up? What so I'll, give, the- I'll give you in a nutshell, like for a meat restaurant typically. Okay. So we have for a meat restaurant, first of all, the first step is the entire kitchen is under lock and key. And we have a kosher supervisor that's on staff anytime the kitchen is open. So the kosher supervisor comes in. He's the only one that has the key to the kitchen. He opens up the kitchen. And nothing can happen without the kosher supervisor on there. When the kosher supervisor leaves at the end of the day, they close the kitchen. And that's it for the kitchen. And the kosher supervisor, just to clarify, they work for the kosher agency. They don't work for the restaurant. Correct. Sometimes you'll have – they could be paid through the restaurant, um, which would make them, I guess, a dual employee. In an ideal world, which some of our places and in an ideal world, all of our places and all the places around the world would love to have that everyone's paid directly from the agency, which gives you – Which a, removes the conflict of interest. Correct, correct. And now the conflict of interest issue is is less of an issue just because we certify enough places that if there was an ever, ever an issue that they had to stand ground for something – uh, we can just relocate them and put them somewhere else. So, you know, as much as, yes, they would like to maintain their job, but, you know, that, so that's one piece. So one piece is that the kitchen is on – the first thing is the kitchen is on a lock and key with a kosher supervisor on staff all the time. Next thing is we also have – the whole kitchen is monitored by video camera, which I have access to. Oh, fantastic. I did right. not know that. Okay. Um, and, and, you're, and you're saving and the video, recording yes, it. Right, okay. recording um, that's number two. So we basically have a kosher supervisor on staff all the time with the kitchen under lock and key with surveillance cameras. And again, the key is only and in possession. And the key is only in possession of the kosher supervisor. So that that's before you walk in the kitchen. That's before you walk in the door. And then once you walk in the door, so that by definition, that means that anything that's happening is with the kosher supervisor there. So everything that comes in the door, every ingredient is inspected, is inspected by the kosher supervisor and you know, before they use it. And then the kosher supervisor is the one that washes the vegetables according to a specific procedure to make sure there's no infestation. And they put on the fires and they, they do all kinds of other tests to um, ensure that everything is kosher. And, and I, I want to just add uh, to, to, to basic background information here. When you buy meat, you go to the, you go to the grocery store, right? And there's, there's a kosher meat and then there's a non-kosher meat. And then you compare the prices. The non-kosher meat, it's $1.99 a pound. The same exact cut of meat on the kosher side, it's $7, $10. It's so more expensive. The first thing that people tell me is like, oh, it must be price, price gouging. But keep this in mind for a second, okay? Kosher meat, when you slaughter an animal, the first thing they do is check for the health of the animal based on a specific kosher laws. Kosher law requires that the animal be healthy according to certain regulations. Um, so the first thing we do is we inspect the lungs to make sure they're healthy and other parts of the animal to make sure that the animal is a healthy animal. What percentage of animals do you think that are slaughtered in a slaughterhouse are actually approved for kosher use? I, I, I'm going to guess it's a small percentage. Okay. So it's, it's, it's for argument's sake, one, one, uh, one meat product, uh, the owner of one of the meat production companies told me, um, it's, we're talking about about 30%. So okay? three out of 10 passed the bar. And there are other seven out of 10, okay. just to clarify. These There's are a range. animals. So through 30 is, you know, is a range. Around 30%. But around 30. The and other, the other animals, animals are sold off at a loss. They're sold off to the non-kosher. Correct. And, and, and the reason why is because they have lesions. They're not they healthy. Have, they're correct. punctured lungs. They got cancerous tumors. Whatever it is, the animal's not healthy enough to pass the rigorous pass the kosher bar. standards. Yes. Correct. And then, 
after that, there are there are very strict regulations with using the back part of the animal. We have to you have to remove certain veins and fats and certain pieces which are not kosher by the Torah which standards. are not kosher according to the Torah, um, which is very very complex process to remove. In in the United States, most companies don't bother removing it, and they cut off the set back half of the animal and sell it off. Okay, so of that thirty percent, what are we left with? So half, you say of, half of it. So fifteen percent of actual fifteen percent. Okay. And in order to create that, they need to have a team of kosher slaughterers who are trained extensively. They have to have kosher inspectors who are inspecting all the animals and whatever other associated costs to produce that 15% that's going to be sold to the kosher market. Amazing. That's the cost. It's, it's, it's it pretty sense. incredible. But I, I think just, just to kind of round out to the restaurant, you got the kosher meat and it's more expensive. So if I'm a restaurant, I'm, incentivized to try to to try to supplant some of the meat with a non-kosher meat. Absolutely. That's really the problem. Absolutely. And that's the reason why we have these kind of regulations. Now I will tell you, with all the all the systems that we have with the lock and key and surveillance cameras and someone on staff, if someone's out there to cheat us I, I, they can do it. I mean, there's nothing. Well, we, well, the question is, could they do it on a major scale? No. If they do it on a so major a scale, bit, yeah. yes, they will get caught. If they, if they want to slip in one brisket, if the guy's conniving enough, he can do it just because every kosher supervisor has to go to the bathroom. And, you know, I mean, if, if a guy's out to cheat, he can cheat. But yes, every, you can never do that. No way. No way. So I have a little bit of trauma with this because, you know, I grew up in Muncie, New York and there was a, Huge scandal a little more than a decade ago of, of a, a kosher, allegedly kosher meat uh, seller in town that uh, that did all kinds of chicanery and swapping and a, a terrible, terrible scandal. I actually had a teacher, one of my uh, rabbis in high school. He didn't eat from his meat and he would only eat from the meat that he himself either personally slaughtered and supervised and oversaw or someone that he knew and trusted. And he was saved uh, from that. But I'm very happy to hear that we've kind of upgraded our practices. We don't, we don't trust anyone, not because we don't trust them, but because, you know, that's our mandate to our consumers that we're going to do whatever it can, develop all kinds of safety measures and ordinances to prevent such terrible tragedies where people present food as being kosher and do kinds of shtick in the background to uh, – to, to actually supplant it with non-kosher meat. I want to end, uh, give you the time to talk about, you know, what your mission is in the KIA, the Kosher Institute of America, and uh, also the nature of the course that you're providing uh, to the community to give them kosher mastery in eight hours. So, you know, if I, if I were to tell you, hey, I know the laws of kosher, why do I need to subscribe to your course? What would you tell me? You don't need to. That's first of all. <laughs> but... Um I think that that first of all, I would I would highly recommend taking the kosher quiz on the website kosherinstitute.com. And if if you feel confident, then you should get a hundred um, or a ninety. Ninety is also good. I got a sixty. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know the the I think that there is a tremendous amount that we do by rote, a tremendous amount of kitchen action that we do in, in food preparation and so on that we do by rote. But there's really a lot of things that people just are not aware of. I mean, if you ask someone, listen, I made, you know, I made uh, pasta, I made pasta and a meat pot and I want to use it with dairy. I don't know. Could I use it? Could I not? I don't know. You know, it's, it's there's a lot of these questions like that. So basically, and the truth is that you can find articles online on practically every topic in regarding kosher. What we're presenting here is it's actually there's nothing like this available online. Or, or elsewhere that I'm aware of, where it's actually comprehensive, meaning you start from A to Z. You start from knowing nothing, you learn everything you need to know about kosher. Now, for someone that has the background, guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed that you'll you'll really, really upgrade your knowledge without a question. And even people that know stuff like to have it organized. Organized in your yeah. mind. And also with this, you know, that's the reason we offer lifetime access. As long as the course is up online, you have access is because we don't want people to have a year access and, and you know, they have a question. They want to go back. They want to review a video. They want to, you know, so it's something which you have available anytime you want. And let me ask you a question. If I subscribe to your course, do I get access to you as an expert? Can I text you? Can I email you? Can I get some? So we have so a question hour. There's a question hour once a week. Um, where the, the only the, the number is only available to participants. Okay. It's not available online to the regular public. And typically, when people leave comments 
in you can leave comments on the course. Typically, I get to answer them at some point. Right. So they'll have access they'll to have a, access. Real, a real kosher, a kosher yeah. expert. I want to just make a disclaimer. I would say just one point. Yeah, go ahead. You don't need the same disclaimer. Um, it's very, very important that you have a rabbi to ask kosher questions to. This kosher course will not replace it. It will supplement that. Uh, you need to, when a question, you know, you cut the wrong thing with the wrong knife, you need to have someone to call. I want to add my disclaimer, and, and that is that, you know, uh, Rabbi Dune is a dear friend of mine, but I'm not, I'm not going to get a cut from the course, not me, not Torch. I just think it's a very valuable service, and it's, uh, it's a tremendous, um, it's a tremendous benefit that for the community, for the Jewish nation at large, and you said there's a code um, yes, uh, special that, code for podcast listeners. And that's uh, Rabbi Wolby. Thank you. Um, who I very, very much admire. <laughs> thank you. Uh, um, the code is, the code uh, is Torch15. Torch15, yes. And that gives you 15%, 15% off. Off, yeah. Yes. Um, we're actually partnering now with, with H.com. The course is going to be available on H.com. Uh, they reached out. They wanted to have this something which was available through their, through their website. So that's very exciting. Um, but yeah, so this, this, this coupon code is unique to podcast listeners. And, um, I would en- encourage everyone to check it out. And just for clarification, what's the cost of the, of the cost the- is $96 or $24 over four months. And I want to add that myself and Torch, if someone wants to take the course and legitimately would take it and they feel like that's too much, even with 15% off, email me, rabbitwallbygym.com. I'm going to get scholarships to cover uh, or to help people pay this. I don't want anyone to not take this course and to not become a kosher master. I'm happy to work with you on that. Okay, great. <laughs> so I, again, I'm not, I'm not, we're not doing this to, to my, myself not to make any money off it because I feel like it's such a valuable service. And, um, again, kosherinstitute.com, we have the amazing Robert Nelson Dubin, a real, real expert who goes through step by step kosher mastery in eight hours. Coupon code Torch15, 50% off. And again, reach out to me, email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. If that's difficult for, uh, uh, for scholarships, thank you so much, Rabbi Duin, for doing this thank amazing you so much, service. Rabbi uh, Wolby, <laughs> it's always a pleasure being with you. Um, your podcasts are unreal, so articulate. Oh, and thank you. There's a reason why they're so popular. Uh, yeah, okay. And, uh, uh, and you should continue doing wonderful things for the Jewish people. Yes, you too. And, and hopefully, you know, you'll be at the forefront of teaching, teaching the world, teaching our nation more about this very important, uh, We have some other projects aspect. in the pipeline, uh, that oh, we're wow. working on. Okay. We'll, we'll find out about that. But, uh, when they hit the, uh, I was, uh, I'm contracting with another, with ACO now, Association of Cashless Organizations, we're working on another project together, but we'll, we'll keep you updated. Excellent. Thank you so much for the opportunity and okay, uh, fantastic. you should continue doing wonderful things.